Hello again, and welcome back to another edition of Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and we've got another fine week of CFL football on tap for us to analyze, and as always, we'll review last week's action as well. Before we get to that, I'll mention that you can follow along on Twitter at KDrive88. That's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, where I would be more than happy to entertain all of your questions, comments, and feedback, or visit the website at firstlinepicks.com. The full archive of shows is available on the website if, for whatever reason, you just can't get enough of my voice. Without further ado, we'll dive on into our look back at week 13, where Friday Night Football had us out east, BC visiting Montreal in a game where we'd been banking on the Lions getting off to a hot start before presumably folding in the second half. Alas, the Lions took too long to get anything cooking on offense, failing to score until the final two minutes of the second quarter, and they would go on to come up short in yet another football game, losing 21-16 when the final whistle blew. Montreal did everything we expected them to do in the early going in this game, unleashing both William Stanback and Jeremiah Johnson along the ground, and largely riding those two to a seven-point lead at the half. Vernon Adams was able to stretch the field a couple of times, but made a crucial error just before halftime, tossing a pick in the end zone with the Owls in field goal range. The Lions did a poor job of containing a Montreal running game that they had to know was coming, but the Owls strayed from what had been working in the third quarter when they failed to pick up a single yard of offense, and BC took this game over in terms of the possession. But despite the Montreal defense getting marched on twice for three quarters of the length of the field, they came up with red zone stops and the Lions still trailed by a point early in the fourth quarter. And then we saw Vernon Adams in this offense do what they've done the whole season and put together a methodical touchdown drive just when things were threatening to slip away. No surprise seeing that from the other side either. You can't be too rough on a Lions defense that only gave up 21 points on the night, but again the fourth quarter success eludes them, giving up that drive to hand all the momentum back to Montreal and not being able to come up with a 2-0 and out or even a 4-0 and out to get their team the ball back after they decided to kick a field goal to shave the deficit to 5 points just inside the 3-minute warning. This was definitely the best effort we've seen out of BC's much-discussed offensive line, and they got the help they needed from their play caller, with the Lions committing to the run and sticking with it even after a couple of stuffs, which paid some dividends on play fakes later on. But ultimately, the failure to cash in on either of those red zone opportunities in the second half sunk them, in a game that incredibly managed to land right on the closing number of five, so all you early Lions backers managed to sneak in the back door, and if you were late to the window, you at least got a push out of it. Montreal turning it over on downs inside the BC 25-yard line on a third-and-one gamble proved to be the play that determined this spread, and you have to think that if they had even gained half a yard less on the second down play, they'd probably kick a very makeable field goal and win the game by eight. This goes to show that you can run through all the numbers, make all your projections, place your wager, and let your fate all come down to half a yard either being gained or not gained on a routine second down run call. Welcome to the world of betting. Okay, moving on to Toronto-Ottawa, a game we expected to be an offensive affair, and we were not disappointed as this game sailed past the 51.5 total. The Argonauts, in fact, almost reaching that by themselves in a 46-17 beatdown of the Red Blacks. Tough afternoon for Ottawa. This was a game they absolutely had to win if they were going to make any serious push to the playoffs in the last two months of the season. 
and they actually got off to a decent start with Jonathan Jennings leading them down the field for a touchdown on the opening drive. They got after Toronto through the air, as you might expect, but they weren't able to keep that up after McLeod Bethel-Thompson got his offense rolling, and this turned into a blowout in the third quarter, and the Argos defense that had been beaten up so badly in the second half of ball games in recent weeks actually managed to turn in a half-decent performance here. Ottawa somehow managed their way to 400 yards passing in this game, but eh, this was largely the product of two drives in the first half, really, and even against a leaky defense, they never managed to get a lot of consistency going. John Crockett's absence was once again evident, with a run game that lacks any explosiveness whatsoever when they're forced to use Moses Madu. Biggest disappointment might have been R.J. Harris. This was a guy Ottawa needed to get more out of than they have up until now, and he was held to just two catches by the league's worst secondary. As I said, not a game the Red Blacks could afford to lose with their playoff chances already fading, but they'll have to rally and get ready for a visit to BC this Friday, and you've got to think they're probably on their final mulligan at this point. The Argonauts will have their final bye week now, and they'll have some time to reflect on a season that might have been a lot more interesting down the stretch if they'd just managed to hang on to a couple of very winnable football games in the two weeks leading up to this one. Guys will be playing for jobs down the stretch, and I think that probably includes the head coach. So maybe we continue to see signs of life out of Toronto, but at 2-9 the damage is likely too severe to be overcome. Now, one guy whose performance I'll single out is, is that of Toronto linebacker Bear Woods, who was all over the field making tackles in his season debut. I'm not really sure what compelled him and general manager Jim Pop to kiss and make up, but his presence was obvious in a good way in that linebacking core, which hasn't had the season they'd hoped for this year. Woods, if you'll remember, was a high-profile cut back before training camp began, and he'd actually been on the Argos practice roster since being brought back about a month ago. I don't want to overreact to a one-game sample against a bad Ottawa team, but you have to wonder what the holdup was on getting him back onto the active roster after seeing the day he had on Saturday. We'll slide over to the Banjo Bowl now, where the skeleton crew Winnipeg sent onto the field on offense had no trouble exacting swift and brutal revenge on their biggest rival, riding Chris Strevler's legs in a big defensive effort to a 35-10 blowout win on Saturday afternoon. Things couldn't have started any worse for the Bombers in this game. Lousy return on the opening kickoff, and then Strevler takes a huge sack on the first snap, and two plays in you're sitting on your own one-yard line in the biggest game of the year. Yeah, and then you had what I would honestly call the turning point of the ball game, two plays in, as Strevler calls his own number, rumbles 17 yards to get them out of trouble, and Winnipeg honestly never looked back, driving 109 yards to secure a lead that was never threatened. I was concerned for the Bombers coming into this game after Lucky Whitehead was ruled out and Nick Dembski ended up being a late scratch as well. Unfortunately, a case where injury news ended up scaring me off of a team I was initially high on, but this was a fantastic effort by committee on the part of the Winnipeg offense, and the, the biggest share of the credit has to go to the line. These guys flat out dominated a Saskatchewan defensive front that has eaten a lot of teams up this season. And with a quarterback who's built like a fullback moving the pocket around, they found a way to march early and often and put this game out of reach by halftime. And they certainly had a lot of help from the other two units as well, with Janarian Grant finding the end zone again on a punt return that really broke the riders back, and a fumble recovery on defense late in the first half that also resulted in another major, and the route was on at that point. 
The final score probably overstates the Winnipeg dominance to some degree. They definitely took advantage of some significant situational mistakes by the Riders. But, but my biggest worry with regards to the Saskatchewan offense coming into this game was, in my opinion, realized as I, I felt Steve McAdoo called another game on offense that left a fair bit to be desired. The run game was again non-existent, at least in terms of actual runs by running backs. Now, some of this is definitely attributable to a Winnipeg D-line that overwhelmed the Riders' O-line for most of the afternoon. But Saskatchewan had a stretch of five consecutive second downs of less than five yards to gain where they failed to convert, most of those coming in the second quarter as the game was slipping away. Winnipeg completely owned the football in the first half, and the Riders could have done themselves a lot of favors if they'd simply managed to keep their offense on the field a little bit more. I believe they only had something like 15 or 16 offensive snaps in the entire first half, which, which is about 10 below their seasonal average. One thing they did start doing in the second half, and I don't know why it took as long as it did, is get Cody Fajardo to pull the ball down and run it himself. He was on the run for most of the afternoon anyway, but the Riders started exploiting the pressure in the second half, with Fajardo much more willing to take off when the pocket collapsed rather than dance around and try to find somebody open downfield. Week over week, the Bombers' defense was miles better on second down. I mentioned last week that they killed themselves by failing to get off the field on second downs, successfully defensing just 32% of Riders' second down plays. This week was a complete 180 as they grade successful on 61% of second down snaps, despite a surprisingly small percentage of those being second and long situations. Excellent job by Richie Hall calling the defense as they seemed to know exactly what the Riders were going to do on a lot of these plays, and you wonder if Saskatchewan might have been tipping their hand a little and maybe Winnipeg was able to pick up on some of it in the film room between games. Despite all the missing personnel, this Winnipeg offense looked more like what we're accustomed to than they did the previous week. I would almost say Chris Strevler played the role of the bruising running back vacated by Andrew Harris, serving the second of his two-game suspension, and between him and Johnny Augustine, they racked up 14 successfully graded runs, right in line with their season average, and hit on the 58-yard home run ball, something we saw that offense capitalize on regularly early in the season. If you're Saskatchewan, I think you're probably thankful you managed to get the split in this series after playing four really brutal quarters of football right in the middle of it. They'll be looking to regroup back in Regina this weekend against the Alouettes and remain in the thick of what is now a very tight battle for home field advantage in the Western Division playoff race. Winnipeg will now take their second bye week and will be able to breathe a lot easier after holding on to first place and putting a little bit of distance between themselves and the pack with this win. The Bombers are now four points up on both Saskatchewan and Calgary, with the series tiebreaker yet to be determined, as they will play the Riders one more time about a month from now, before finishing their schedule with a pair of games against the Stamps that will likely go a long way towards determining the final order of things in the West. One team that seems to have exited the conversation as far as contenders for a home field playoff game in November would be the Edmonton Eskimos, who dropped their third straight game overall, and third straight to Calgary specifically, Falling to 6-6 six and six and pretty firmly entrenching themselves into fourth place in the West, which isn't something I think many of us would have expected just three weeks ago when they seemed poised to potentially push past Winnipeg for top spot in the division. Things have really unraveled for this team over the course of three weeks, and, and this is a rather familiar script for this organization, which has sprinted out of the gate three years in a row now, only to fall apart around Labor Day each and every time. Part of that is schedule dynamics, as for whatever reason the Eskimos have had a solid dose of also-rans in the summer portion of their schedule in recent years, but 
With the way that defense was controlling games, this particular midseason swoon is more surprising to me than in years past. Calgary's obviously headed in the opposite direction, and we'll see if two big wins with Bo Levi Mitchell back in the lineup is able to act as a springboard for them to challenge for first place, something that looked like it had maybe slipped out of reach after their defeat in Winnipeg a few weeks back, followed by the late collapse against Montreal uh, that put them at 5-4 and four heading into the Labor Day games. If you were to review all the numbers and knew nothing of how things actually unfolded on the field, you'd probably suspect this was a close game, with Edmonton perhaps coming away with a win even. But in reality, this game was decided by a string of critical mental errors at key times by an Eskimos team that just can't seem to avoid sabotaging their own cause. Be it penalties taken at inopportune times, bad play calls in critical areas of the field, or strange strategic decisions from the head coach, this group never failed to put a bullet in their own foot when given the chance on Saturday night. In their defense, there were a couple of really soft calls that extended stampeder drives that ended up leading to points in the first half. Now it's fair to point out that there were also a pair of Reggie Bagleton catches, or what certainly appeared to be catches, ruled incomplete passes that forced the punt team onto the field. Again, I'll say it, I have absolutely no idea what the command center's in-game role is supposed to be. We've seen these guys call down unprompted to respot footballs half a yard or enforce an offside penalty, but evidently they can't call down to rule a 20-yard pass complete after a clear error on the field rules it incomplete. So your guess is as good as mine. I thought Edmonton's defense did a reasonably good job of adjusting week over week, even though it wasn't reflected on the scoreboard. Kadeem Carey ran wild on Labor Day. Clearly an effort was made to address that, and, and he was kept silent all day as Calgary was a woeful 27% successful running the ball, with nothing longer than 11 yards all day. Where Calgary did have success again was in the passing game, where for the second week in a row, the Eskimos gave up too many medium-sized gains to receivers who knew exactly where to find seams in the coverage. The defensive line did a better job of getting into the backfield and attempting to disrupt Bo Levi Mitchell, but he was still able to get rid of the ball any time protection broke down. The other thing they did, which they haven't done all season, was come up with some turnovers to give their offense a break with a short field. At the end of the day, I think you have to give this defense a passing grade for what they were able to get done. Only a single play went for more than 20 yards, and unfortunately for them it was a touchdown strike, but three turnovers makes up for any damage that was un inflicted and, and they graded out at a 59% success rate overall. The Stampeders defense didn't quite replicate their performance from Labor Day but they were able to limit Edmonton's explosiveness and found the end zone themselves with a pick six against Logan Kilgore who played about three quarters of this football game after Trevor Harris left with an arm injury. Edmonton didn't really appear to change much on offense with Kilgore inserted into the game and I think his performance was fine coming off the bench. The offensive line got a better push in this game as well, and C.J. Gable, whether he should still be in the lineup at this point or not, was pretty effective running on first down with a 58% success rate, but wasn't able to shake loose for anything substantial. Probably the key moment in this ball game, and the sequence that really put Calgary on their way to the win, uh, was this defense's ability to dig in inside their own 10-yard line and force a field goal attempt from the two, after Kilgore moved the Edmonton offense down the field quite efficiently towards the end of the second quarter. The red zone conversion issues for Edmonton have been talked about endlessly, and it's hard not to question the ultra-conservative decision to kick another field goal in that spot. I'm generally of the thought that once you get inside your opponent's 10-yard line, field goal needs to come off the table and, and you should be operating with a three-down mentality. 
Yeah, all right, you get three points out of the deal, but don't forget you also give up 33 yards worth of field position in doing so because the other team's just going to take the ball at the 35 after you kick that field goal. So it's just not a good trade-off. And in the second quarter of a three-point game, I, I just don't understand the hesitation to try to punch it in there and give your team a lead. Not the only head-scratching call coming from the Edmonton sideline either. Devaris Daniels couldn't quite come up with a catch early in the third quarter on what looked like pretty clear pass interference, uh, so why Coach Moss wouldn't challenge this on, on what would have swung about 40 yards worth of field position and, and put Edmonton inside the Calgary 30-yard line, uh, only he can tell us. And probably the most puzzling of all was his willingness to try an onside kick to start the second half, trailing by a touchdown, but in a 16-point game with under five minutes remaining, and the kickoff moved up to the 50-yard line after a Stampeders penalty on the convert attempt, uh, he sends Sean White out to hammer it through the end zone. So not only do you, you kick deep in a very obvious onside situation, you don't even try to pin the stamps deep. Another football game where an opposing coaching staff is, is simply much more prepared and much more in control than, than Jason Moss appeared to be, and, and I haven't even brought up the critical fake punt that Calgary turned into a big gain and eventually a, a touchdown that the Eskimos clearly didn't anticipate whatsoever. And then Moss comes right out and admits publicly earlier this week that he didn't have Logan Kilgore properly prepared to enter this ball game in the event of a Harris injury. Hard to have much faith in Edmonton going forward considering who's at the controls. Yeah, if you're Calgary, it's tough to ask for a much better turn of events. They kept Bo Levi upright for two consecutive games and managed to walk away with two victories that were never really in any doubt, and, and they really didn't have to resort to anything fancy or use up any bullets, so to speak, in, in chalking up two victories that have them back thinking about pushing for first place down the stretch. They're still dealing with a fairly hefty list of injuries as well, but as we've seen for years, the next man up philosophy seems to be working out just fine for them. Alrighty, let's dive into this week's games and the sides and totals that accompany them. A late week, only three games on the schedule, with Toronto, Winnipeg, and Edmonton on the bye week. The week kicks off on Friday night with what promises to be a titanic struggle between the 3-8 and eight Red Blacks and their gracious hosts, the 1-10 BC Lions, still in search of their first home win of the season. The bookies suggest that this is a prime opportunity for them to pick up that first win, installing them as minus five favorites, and as surprising as this may sound, this is actually the first game of the year where the Lions will be favored at home at kickoff time, assuming something bizarre doesn't happen to move this line nearly a touchdown between now and Friday night. BC comes into this game pretty much playing for pride, although if there's one last shred of hope they can cling to, it's that Edmonton looks like a team who might be capable of losing the rest of their schedule, so it's not completely impossible BC could make the playoffs if they won every single game. Ottawa's chances of reeling in those same Eskimos to deny them the crossover spot are quite a bit more realistic while still being faint, but it has to start with a win here against a beatable opponent. This will be a homecoming of sorts for Red Blocks starter Jonathan Jennings, who spent several seasons in BC before moving on to Ottawa as a free agent this winter. He'll be taking this offense up against a BC defense that's continuing to turn in some decent performances in terms of limiting big plays against the man points on the scoreboard. The lack of a pass rush is something that continues to limit it, that continues to limit the overall effectiveness of this group though as is their much-discussed inability to close out ball games in the fourth quarter. 
Ottawa has moved running back John Crockett onto the six-game injured list now, so what had become a weekly question of whether or not he was going to be available has evidently been answered, and it's a shame for both team and player that he probably isn't going to be in the lineup anytime soon. Ottawa has to get this running game going, though, regardless of who's getting the ball, as this offense just doesn't have the talent to operate effectively if both facets of the offense aren't producing positive results. Now the good news here is BC is an ideal front seven to run against if you're trying to ignite the ground game. And as long as their own defense doesn't let this game get away in the first half, the Red Blacks should have the opportunity to establish the running game here. You're probably going to have to go back to week five against Edmonton to find the last time this Lions defense actually won the battle against an opposing running back. With opponents grading successful on well over 60% of overall rushing attempts against them on a high volume of carries for nearly two months now. Ottawa has been a disaster on the ground in just about every game where Crockett wasn't healthy. So this is going to be a classic weakness versus weakness situation and we'll see if either group is able to step it up this week. If Ottawa can keep themselves out of second and long by avoiding negative plays on first down, I think they're going to have a chance here. Jonathan Jennings has looked all right. He just isn't getting much help from anyone around him. Going back into an environment he's very familiar with should be something in his favor, and if Ottawa can make the defense respect the run a little bit, they might be able to open up some space downfield, something they've had trouble creating for much of the season. If the Lions' secondary managed to force some turnovers against Montreal, something they've done very little of this year, but they haven't been all that consistent throughout the year. We've seen teams key on matchup advantages against this defense, and they've they've generally been slow to adapt. So if Jennings can get something going with a, a Sinopoli, Rhymes, or, or Harris early on, history's shown that they can probably return to that same well a few times. That said, BC did put in an uncharacteristically strong third quarter against the Alouettes, and Devon Claybrooks has commented on the continuity of personnel throughout the season starting to have a positive effect, so... This is a group that I'd look to potentially trend upwards as we enter the last third of the season. Now that Trevor Harris has had to leave a game injured, Mike Riley, for all the abuse he's taken, is now the only week one starting quarterback to make it this far unscathed. Ottawa hasn't thrown a lot of pressure at opposing passers this season, so I like his chances of leaving this game in one piece as well. The Lions seem to have finally shelved the long-developing deep pass plays that their leaky offensive line simply wouldn't allow them to run successfully. And we saw a lot of dink and dunk passing against the Alouettes along with the run. Given the performance their offensive line was able to put in running that kind of offense, I'd imagine they don't stray too far from it against Ottawa. The Red Blacks have been easy to pass against this season, but Brian Burnham has been the only credible deep threat in that receiving core this season, and he's a guy more more suited to crossers and routes into higher traffic areas of the field. Jerron Carter has been the overhyped bust that he was in previous cities, and Lamar Durant has been invisible the last two weeks, so the Lions aren't getting much out of these guys downfield anyways. Brandon Rutley had a pretty decent game last week carrying the ball and catching it out of the backfield, and that's what the Lions need to focus on again this week. Injury notes, uh, Ottawa safety Antoine Pruno got hurt on the first play of the game against the Argonauts, and the talk is he might be done for the season with a calf injury. So one more blow to the Red Blacks as if they needed another one on the injury front. This line has stayed pretty stable since the Open, sitting at minus 5.5 right now, pretty much across the board. There's still the odd 5 out there. 
Not the fun answer, but eh, this is a straight-up avoid for me at this number. We've all watched Ottawa this season, and we've seen a lot of games get away on them early. Going across the country after getting blown out at home by Toronto should probably have you apprehensive about backing them right now, but it is worth noting that this team has played better on the road than at home this year. I definitely don't expect the Red Blacks to get blown out in this one, and it wouldn't even surprise me if they won the game outright, but this offense just isn't one you can confidently go into battle with right now. On the BC side, you're being asked to lay nearly a touchdown on a 1-10 football team. Obviously, we've got to dig a lot deeper than final scores and win-loss records to handicap these games and assign a number to them, but the, the Lions are 1-10 for a reason. Whether it's offense, defense, or special teams leading the charge, they've always found a way to come up short. This is angling towards being a low-scoring game, and, and the offense isn't operating at a rate where you'd feel comfortable asking them to win by nearly a touchdown. And that brings me to the total, which opened at 50.5 and, and has ticked down a notch to 50 even as it stands right now. I don't expect either of these teams to be stretching the field with regularity, and the overall lack of explosiveness from these offenses makes the under an attractive play right now. I'm sure there's a thought that McLeod Bethel-Thompson lighting up that Ottawa defense last week is perhaps a sign that Mike Riley ought to do the same, but if BC stays reasonably close to the game plan they've run in we recent weeks, I don't expect them to be putting the ball in the air 40 times. Neither of these defenses are strong enough to be forcing repeat two and outs either, so eh, this is a game where possessions are probably going to be more limited, and we see decent chunks of time burning off the clock on consistently short gains that will move the sticks a couple of times, but not regularly find the end zone. Moving ahead to Saturday afternoon, the first leg of a doubleheader has the Hamilton Tiger Cats coming off a bye week, heading into McMahon Stadium to face the Stampeders, fresh off another Labor Day sweep. Calgary opened as minus 6.5 favorites, and that line is held firm at about eh, half the books out there, moving to a full 7 with reduced juice at a few others. The total has hung out at 51.5 since opening a shade higher at 52. These teams played back in July in Hamilton with the Tiger Cats using a couple of special teams touchdowns to escape with a 30-23 win in a game where both offenses were actually rather inept, despite the final score. Hamilton's interesting. At 9-2, they're in the driver's seat out east, and they've managed to build this record despite losing Jeremiah Masoli for what is now more than half the season. Four straight wins now under Dane Evans, a couple of those by the skin of their teeth, and a couple rather convincingly. First start was that narrow loss in Regina, and is the only blemish on his record. You certainly have to like that they come into this game well-rested. So I don't think the trip across the country is quite going to be the negative that it normally is, especially considering Calgary just played two intense rivalry games. But this is by far going to be a stiffer test than Ottawa, Toronto, and BC were, and those are the three teams Hamilton has beat to comprise their four-game win streak. We know Dane Evans is going to be taking the snaps for the Tabbies, but who he'll have in the backfield to hand it off to is yet to be determined. It's been a revolving door at this running back position all season due to a persistent injury bug, and the Cats actually signed former Alouette Tyrell Sutton this week and put him on the practice roster. This would suggest to me that Cameron Marshall and possibly Malik Irons as well aren't particularly close to getting back into the lineup. Jackson Bennett and Anthony Coombs handled things last time out, primarily Bennett as far as actual rushes, and he had a good enough showing in an unlikely opportunity. Whether he's a long-term option if none of the guys ahead of him on the depth chart end up getting back onto the field remains to be seen, though. 
Hamilton has run the ball pretty heavily over the last three games, and I would say overall they've been good enough, but they're probably not scaring the Stampeders' defense with Jackson Bennett. Hamilton wasn't effective along the ground against this defense back in Week 5 with Malik Irons, probably roughly similar in quality to Bennett in, in limited sample sizes. The ability of this offensive line to get three yards worth of push uh, certainly is going to help whoever's back there, which is one reason Hamilton has been able to survive all these injuries in the backfield. I'm interested to see how successful they can be against a Calgary defensive line that will still be missing some depth with Chris Kasher and Jabbar Westerman remaining on the injured list. If Hamilton can get the same level of production out of their backfield that the Alouettes did against Calgary with Jeremiah Johnson when they visited the Stamps at the end of August, I think they're probably satisfied and it would give them the chance to put points on the board. Stampeders have been excellent at limiting explosive runs, but teams have been able to nickel and dime them somewhat along the ground if they stay committed to it. The Stamps' coverage unit was first-rate in both games against Edmonton, but they'll be dealing with a different style of receiver here, and, and they'll have to be ready for the speed that Brandon Banks and Braylon Addison are going to bring to the field. We're going back a little ways here, but while the Calgary defense has largely kept a lid on explosive plays, they did have trouble limiting the intermediate stuff against Toronto earlier in the year and Montreal a couple weeks back. Hamilton's offense isn't going to operate scared like Edmonton's appeared to in the last two weeks, so... The secondary is certainly going to get tested a little more than they were uh, the last two weeks, and, and they'll have to be prepared for that change of pace. Calgary's offense is going to have a different look compared to the first meeting as well, as that game, of course, featured Nick Arbuckle under center. I've been fairly impressed with the play of Bo Levi Mitchell, at least from a mechanics perspective thus far in two games back. He hasn't shown any signs of Ruster not being up to game speed despite being on the shelf for half the year, and he's zipping the ball downfield with plenty of authority, so no concerns in that regard. Three interceptions last game is something he'll need to clean up, and eh, even the best of quarterbacks are going to make a bad decision with the football from time to time, so no reason to worry about that going forward as far as I'm concerned. There were a couple of plays against the Eskimos last week where he stood in the pocket and delivered a strike even knowing he was about to get drilled, so and that's another encouraging sign that he's not feeling any ill effects from the injury. The speed with which he was getting rid of the ball was clearly something that Calgary was doing by design. As you've heard me say, he, he knew exactly where his receivers were going to find soft spots in coverage against Edmonton, especially in that first game. Calgary had the advantage of going into Labor Day off a bye and then didn't have to game plan for a new opponent, obviously, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Dave Dickinson and his staff are able to come up with come up with this week. And you could almost say the shoe is on the other foot now, as Orlando Steinauer is, is the guy who's had two weeks to get ready for this game. Finding a way to bring effective pressure without getting carved up along the ground in response is going to be Hamilton's biggest priority, I think. Sounds like they will be getting Ted Laurent back in the interior. That's a bonus for a defensive line that was already doing fine in his absence, and you may as well say they'll have Frankie Williams and Tende Adelike back in the secondary as well, considering they were both ejected in the first quarter against Toronto. It'll be interesting to see if Calgary sticks to their trend of regularly trying to go deep on first down. They've been willing to gamble for more yardage, but it hasn't really led to a higher proportion of explosive plays on first downs compared to the rest of the league, and it has left them facing second and long a lot more often than anyone else. And the Tiger Cats have a dynamic secondary that has defended no one passing situations well this season. Given Hamilton's hit-and-miss reputation defending the run, 
I'd expect Calgary tries to involve Kadeem Carey more often on first downs and, and hope that he can repeat some of the success he's had throughout this season now that he's, he's finally been healthy for more than a couple games at a time. So six and a half remains the number in this one. Not too surprising that things have pretty much hung steady there. I like the spot Hamilton finds themselves in, and, and metrically there's definitely a case to be made that the market is overrating the Stampeders right now and that this number maybe ought to be closer to a field goal than a touchdown. But I completely understand the line of thinking that eh, Bull Levi's back now, and Hamilton hasn't beat anyone decent since the end of July, and, and that's probably the reason we're seeing the market hesitate to back a 9-2 and two team getting this many points. For me, I, I lean Tiger Cats slightly here, and it's mainly for the reason I highlighted earlier, and that, that's the travel disadvantage is, is going to be largely negated by having that bye week to rest up and prepare. If you're into trends, Calgary has generally struggled at home this season relative to expectations. The record says 4-2, and two, but realistically Labor Day was the only convincing win they've produced on home field this season, and, and they would likely need to come up with another one of those to cover the number this time around. Total-wise, this is a tough one to iron out. The quality and, and current form of both defenses would likely steer you in the direction of the under, but both offenses like to look for those explosive plays, and as we saw earlier this season, e even in a game dominated by the defense, the total still only stayed under by the slimmest of margins after all the special teams' fireworks were accounted for. This is probably one I'd, I'd sit out at the current number and, and maybe look for an opportunity to jump in on a live line if you're, you're desperate to get some action down while watching the game. The nightcap will take us to Saskatchewan, where the Riders presently sit as 6.5-point favorites over the Montreal Alouettes. The total in this game has seen a bit of an under-action so far, dipping just below 50 now after opening at 51. So another matchup between teams that have already seen each other this year, something that is generally the case in the second half of a CFL season. But in this case, there's unfortunately not a huge amount of relevant data to try and use to our advantage in handicapping this game. The initial Riders-Owls matchup was of course called off late in the third quarter due to a lightning delay, Saskatchewan being awarded the controversial 17-10 victory. This was also the game Vernon Adams missed due to injury, and the Riders capitalized with a pair of scooping scores after both Antonio Pipkin and Matthew Schiltz put the ball on the rug after a couple of hellacious hits from the Riders' defensive line. But that is in the past now, and it will, of course, be Adams back driving the bus for the Owls, and for the second week in a row, he'll have a healthy William Stanback to give the ball to. Up to this point, I would say this duo has been as good as any in the CFL this season, as Montreal continues to pile up the wins, now sporting a record of six wins against just one defeat in games where Adams has played the full 60 minutes. If the Riders are going to prevent that win total from moving to 7, their best course of action is obviously to injure Adams and prevent him from playing the full 60 minutes of the football game. But assuming they don't resort to that, they're going to have their hands full in this game and they, they really need Cody Fajardo in their offense to rediscover the magic they showed at times during the 6-game winning streak that put them in position to challenge for first place. This was an offense that was running on first down nearly 50% of the time through the first 7 weeks of the season, and it was allowing them a lot of manageable second-down situations, which they were converting at nearly a 60% clip. The last four weeks, for whatever reason, and it's not injuries because they've been quite healthy on offense lately, they just haven't been, been interested in doing this, passing on about 75% of snaps. 
This worked out fine for them against Ottawa, and the score necessitated it against Winnipeg last week, but it's not likely to work well against this defense specifically. There's one area of the field where the Owls haven't generally exceeded expectations this season. It's in the trenches on the defensive side of the ball. You can run against this team. Montreal's success rate defending the run is still well below 40% for the season. The first two games of the year make that look a little worse than it actually is, but bottom line, this, this team is still giving up too much along the ground. What has bailed them out is, is how well they've defended the pass on second down. We had high hopes for this Montreal secondary coming into the season, and, and really besides the game in Moncton where the, the Argonauts dropped back to pass 55 times and caught them for a handful of big plays, these guys have been playing very solid football for a couple of months now. Saskatchewan likes the, the explosive plays, and you know, we've, we've seen them go deep plenty of times, but you know, if, if they're not mixing things up and, and sucking some of that coverage towards the line of scrimmage, I, I don't see them being particularly successful trying to put on an air show against a defensive backfield where somebody always seems to be stepping up and, and making a, a play when they need one. Greg Reed specifically is a, a guy that's impressed me back there for the Alouettes. Um, you know, not a guy that, you know, really a whole lot was known about coming in into this season. Not a not a lot of fanfare. Certainly not a a big name like like a Tommy Campbell or a Ciante Evans. But he he's been doing a really solid job back there. So uh, I just thought I'd point that out. Uh, trying to figure out what's what's going through the mind of uh, Saskatchewan OC Steve McAdoo has, has been a frustrating exercise for a number of years now, uh, first in Edmonton and now in Regina. So the, the obvious strategy might not necessarily be the one the riders choose to employ here. I think they got things sorted out somewhat in the second half of last week's game, finally getting Cody Fajardo using his legs again, but they're not the first team to look competent against Winnipeg's defense when the Bombers are playing with a big lead, so how much of that is going to carry over into this week is questionable. Craig Dickinson came right out in his, his media availability and, and said that there's going to be an emphasis on, on getting back to the run, but he also mentioned that ultimately the calls will come from the coordinators, so take that for what it's worth. Biggest news this week out of Riders Camp would be the signing of receiver Jordan Williams Lambert, who failed to stick with the Chicago Bears after NFL camps wrapped up. Williams Lambert is a big-bodied presence in the receiving core, and he'll add another very capable weapon to Fajardo's arsenal once he's up to speed. I'm curious as to who will be coming out of the lineup, though. Saskatchewan now has six import receivers on the roster, probably all of whom you'd, you'd consider viable top four options, so a lot of bodies in the mix now. Kenny Stafford hasn't been used since being acquired in August, so you'd, you'd have to assume he's not part of the long-term plan here, but if Williams Lambert slides back into a starting position, one of Manny Arsenault, Kyron Moore, or Naaman Roosevelt is, is headed to the bench, which... Might not sit all that well with any of those guys who are, are all above re replacement level talents. On offense for Montreal, Vernon Adams isn't likely to run by design as often as Chris Strevler did against this defense, but the, the blueprint is probably going to be fairly similar. Winnipeg softened them up with a steady dose of the run game, and, and we have every reason to believe Montreal will give William Stanback the ball early and often here while likely keeping Adams mobile as well. Jeremiah Johnson is out for this game, which is, is not ideal in terms of managing standbacks load, but it's still not significant enough that I, I expect Kahari Jones to deviate from what uh, what will likely be the overall game plan. Saskatchewan's going to need a big effort from the boys in the trenches to keep Adams contained and prevent standback from finding the second level. 
Micah Johnson is a guy who's who's probably due in in the eyes of his coaching staff to have an impact here. He did get on the board with his first sack of the season against the Bombers on Saturday and and back fully healthy now for for his third game in a row. You'd you'd have to expect he should be back at full speed here and and he'll be vital in in plugging holes up the middle where the Owls like to send Stanback crashing into the line. Charleston Hughes and AC Leonard are, are going to need to set the edge and and keep Adams from exploiting their aggressiveness. We've seen Vernon making circus plays under pressure all season, and, and while I'm normally all for disrupting the quarterback and, and using the blitz as your best defense against the pass, this is a quarterback that can make you pay if you overcommit on the blitz. The Riders won the first game between these two, you know, basically on the strength of an outside pass rush that created two defensive touchdowns, but as we mentioned, Adams wasn't playing in that game, so so different story this time around. This is another game where I find myself leaning the way of the team that's that's getting nearly a touchdown, and I, I can't help but feel the market might actually be sleeping a little bit on the Owls here. Montreal has, has now beat six different teams this season, and they haven't played Winnipeg yet, and obviously the Riders are the, the other team they haven't beaten yet, so uh, well, and that loss comes with an asterisk for more than one reason. Kahari Jones and Vernon Adams have given us plenty of reasons to believe they're capable of beating any team in this league, and that's basically what they've gone out and done since week four. There's a lot of questions surrounding this rider's offense right now. They've only found the end zone on on offense twice in their last 11 quarters if if you remove the Ottawa game where where Dominic Davis tossed three picks on, on his own side of the field on the first three possessions of the game. And asking them to score enough to cover six and a half points against an opponent who's been money in the bank to score 20 plus is, is not something I'd feel comfortable with right now. In terms of the defensive numbers, they've been fine, but it really has been a perfect storm of, of shorthanded opponents come the Riders' way in, in recent weeks here. And, and this will be the most capable offense they've faced probably since the early part of the season. I think Montreal has a pretty reasonable chance to actually win this game outright, and in a greater than plus 200 on the money line, that's an investment I'd give some thought to as well. As far as the total goes, this is another number that doesn't have a lot of value for me right now. These books have been doing a pretty good job as of late on these over-unders, and and we're unfortunately not seeing the high-value bets appear that, that we were getting earlier in the year, but watch the forecast on game day. The prairies are notoriously windy, and, and wind even more so than wet conditions has been known to deflate scoring with, with the negative impact it has on the passing game. So I guess that leads us into the best bet, and you can probably tell where I'm going on this one. If I don't mind Montreal's chances of coming up with an outright win on Saturday night, I definitely don't mind their chances of keeping it inside a touchdown, so that plus 6.5 is, is the number I would be circling on the bet slip if I could only make one play this week. And with that, we have reached the end of another episode of Third Down Gamble. I cannot believe we are already entering into the final third of the season here, but hopefully our luck on the home stretch here more clearly mirrors the success we were having in the early portion of the season, and the string of tough beats we endured through August proves to merely be a speed bump on the road to a profitable CFL season. Thanks as always for listening. Remember you can get in touch anytime by following me on Twitter at kdrive88. And if you're so inclined, you can browse on over to firstlinepicks.com for more sports betting-related content. Have a great weekend, folks. Best of luck whichever side you're on, and hopefully we're all cashing tickets with a smile on our face when the Owls cover 6.5 on Saturday night. We'll see you next week.